Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Believe in Betting Chicago. My name is Joey Christopoulos. Today's episode is brought to you by Bet Online. And look, Bet Online, it's the fastest and easiest way to bet on all of your sports action. March Madness, it's coming down to the final four. And look, baseball, it has begun. 162 games, baby. And look, BetOnline, it's got you covered for all the new scores and odds that you need. And it's the best way to place your bets. And also, it's free to sign up. So head to the website, betonline.ag, and use your mobile device to sign up today. Receive a 50% off welcome bonus on your first deposit. That is only at BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming into the pod. Such a pleasure to have this wonderful guest on today. It's an honor. He is the host of WGN's Legal Faceoff, among many other titles. I've been blessed to be on his show. Now he is on my show. Rich Lenkoff, welcome. How are you today? Doing good, Joey. Thanks for having me. As we talk, I realize my background's a little light. I'm going to walk right to this part of the table. Not get hurt here. Here we go. This is a little bit better. Oh, and that's what we need here. We need proper backlighting. Actually, yeah, that works just perfectly fine. Rich, there thank you, you so much for joining the pod today. So excited to have you on. I like to ask this question first for a lot of first-time guests. Our listeners love hearing about just the journey. What brought you here from Chicago? If you could just kind of walk us through. You got obviously involved in the litigation side of things, but just sort of walk us through the journey of that moment that brought you to where you are today. Way to start off with an easy one, with a light, <laughs> light question, right? Um, yeah, you know, I grew up in, uh, in Canada, actually, Montreal, and uh, spent the first part of my life there, went to college there. Uh, to McGill University. Not many people have heard of McGill up uh, here, but we like to call it the the Harvard of Canada, you know, Joey, but uh, then uh, was looking for a law school that was affordable and went to Northern Illinois out in Chicago, knew nothing about it, and uh, then moved to Chicago after law school, started my law practice, and uh, I've been with my firm since 2002. It's called Bryce Downey Alenkov, and then the last few years started, uh, you know, sort of moving out into other areas, realize that uh, if I'm still doing the same routine legal stuff every day for the next, you know, X number of years, I'd, I'd probably be a little bit uh, bored. So branched off into some entertainment stuff, started a production company with our mutual friend, Scott Preston, who's been on your show. And, uh, you know, we've done some exciting stuff on the, uh, on the entertainment side. So that's kind of an overview. Well, it's great. You get to kind of mix things up a little bit, you know, on one day when you're maybe banging your head against the wall on one thing, you can kind of turn to something else and maybe gives you a little bit of that inspiration. What was the impetus to start WGN's legal face-off with Christina Martini? Just a really cool program that brings different people together to talk about local and also national issues as well. Yeah. You know, we started off, uh, this is almost our seventh year and, you know, seven years ago, Podcasting was not exactly brand new, but it was fairly, you know, it was fairly new. And uh, WGN was just getting into the digital space. And uh, just a sales guy over there, uh, Cole, called me and said, you know, do you have any ideas of something you'd like to do? And I said, I don't know. I've never thought about podcasts. We've done some sort of, you know, marketing in that space a little bit, but not really a podcast. I was a big consumer of podcasts even back then. Uh, you know, Bill Simmons is sort of my uh, inspiration for, for all things podcasting. And I thought I, uh, I was, I've always been a fan of debate formats, right? So anything from, you know, Siskel and Ebert, I watched every Siskel and Ebert ever. I used to love that format. I loved um, Crossfire on CNN, you know, for years. Um, I love PTI, of course. So any format where competing, you know, interests are going against each other, I always think is fascinating. So I thought, let's apply that to the legal field and do a podcast. So that's what we call a legal face-off. The initial idea was me and 
a plaintiff's lawyer. I'm a defense lawyer, plaintiff's lawyer, friend of mine, Jason Whiteside, local Chicago PI lawyer. And we would sort of go at it on, on different legal issues. And then, you know, he, after a couple of years, moved on. Um, and then Tina Martini, who was a guest on the show a few times, she's a, a very prominent lawyer and uh, author of a, a, um, a column in Chicago Lawyer Magazine, got her involved. And then it evolved sort of from the head to head to just, you know, bringing on some great legal guests. And it's gone from there. So it's been really, it's been really fun. We've had some great, uh, amazing guests. I can't believe the quality of, of legal guests we get sometimes, you know, everyone from Alan Dershowitz is a regular, uh, Gloria Allred. Just literally this morning, I, uh, I, I interviewed one of um, George Floyd's civil attorneys, Antonio Romanucci. Oh, wow. Um, you know, we have a lot of lawmakers. We've had like former solicitor generals of the United States, a lot of Supreme Court clerks. So I'm always like really in awe of the quality of people that, that we get. I was very honored to be on the panel for sure. I felt like I I felt like I learned a lot. I tried to absorb as much information as I can, try to not get ahead of my skis, if you will. Yeah. But it is cool to just take different kinds of stories and issues and try and get a little clarity. I think a lot of times for a novice like myself who isn't involved in the uh, the litigation side of how some of these issues go about, it can be a little confusing. You know, I think right now in the sports realm, I think the big untouchable right now is the Deshaun Watson case right now. And I don't want to ask you about like the particulars, but I did want to ask like a kind of a clarifying question on that. You know, just what is your take on where that is right now? You know, people are talking about a lot more about narratives. You know, how does Deshaun Watson side control this? How does the other side control this? And can you help explain to people why, for better or for worse, you know, 19 people are working with one lawyer right now? That part feels confusing to me because is that is that the right move, in your opinion, especially if all 19 people deserve the justice that they're obviously seeking? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's not uncommon for ha to have groups of victims, you know, grouped together. It's not exactly a class action. That's different. You know, class actions where literally you have a class of people who are similarly situated, similarly wronged, and they all group together. This is not quite a class. I think they're all individual lawsuits, um, but they're all, as you point out, they've all hired the same attorney, um, and they're all making basically very similar allegations that Deshaun Watson in some way or another, it was inappropriate with them. Everything from, you know, some of them are, are suggesting that or are alleging that he made sexual, um, you know, advancements towards them. Some say he just used words. Some say he exposed himself. But in various degrees, they're all basically alleging the same thing. So, you know, it's not uncommon for many victims to hire one attorney. We've had, I mentioned Gloria Allred. You know, she's been very prominent in almost every prominent um, case like this over the last 20 years. You know, everything from Bill Cosby to uh, Mara, Mara, or Andrew Cuomo. She just uh, signed up one of the Andrew Cuomo accusers. So to answer your question, it's not uncommon whether they will get justice. You know, I, I don't know if they're going to get treated any differently than if they had their own attorneys. Um, you know, you could argue that by being in a group together, they probably have a little more power. You know, I think we saw that in the, in the Me Too movement. So I'm not surprised by that. What is a little surprising is the move today. Uh, I don't know if you saw, but her, but uh, Deshaun's attorney released a statement with, I think, 18 massage therapists and various therapists who are now in support of him. I guess my question was, like, who has 18 massage? And these are only the ones who are, you know, in favor of him. There's obviously many who are alleging misconduct, but he's a lot of massage therapists. Um, but they, you know, he re they released a statement where these other massage therapists were uh, speaking 
in favor of him and how they were, I think one of them says, floored by the allegations. So we'll see. I mean, to your point, a lot of this has played out in the court of public opinion rather than, you know, the, the courtroom. And just in terms of public opinion, in your estimation right now, what do you think the probability is that the NFL is going to have to get involved with this and probably punish Deshaun Watson in some sort of form or manner? That's a great question. I mean, as you know, the NFL has their own standards, their own guidelines that have nothing to do with, you know, the law. We've seen that in many circumstances, everything from Ben Roethlisberger um, to, you know, pretty much anyone who has been um, disciplined by the NFL the NFL is governed by a personal conduct policy, which means that, you know, when you have a, you know, in, in, the, in the real world, in the criminal world, if you are charged with a crime, you enjoy the blanket of the presumption of innocence, right? We all do. And the state or the county or the you know, federal government have to prove their case against you. And the NFL is different, you know, by signing that contract. Uh, Deshaun Watson agreed to abide himself by the standards policy the NFL has set forth. It's a morals, you know, morals uh, policy. So they don't have the NFL doesn't have to prove the same way a criminal court has the uh, same way in a criminal court you have to prove his guilt or innocence. All they have to you know show is that there is something to this to these allegations and they can discipline him themselves. So I think they will do that for sure because of the amount of allegations, because of the time we're living in, because of the fact that these are multiple females, whether he will ultimately prevail in his lawsuit or in their lawsuit against him, you know, who knows? Um, it's interesting that, you know, there's no criminal charge. Um, you know, that's always something that is a bit of a red flag when there's only civil, uh, a civil lawsuit. You know, I'm on the side of being uber respectful of this, right? I mean, this is really hard for sports commentators and people that, you know, just a month ago, I was we got to get Deshaun Watson on the Bears. Yeah. And how are we going to do it? You know, and now it's a point of, you know, you just mentioned the phrase presumption of innocence. And also, you know, I want to be respectful for people that believe that they deserve justice for being treated what they feel like to be inappropriately. And they feel like that is their own truth. So you just got to really kind of play itself out. And I am curious too, as well, of whether, you know, criminal charges actually are filed because if some of these allegations are true, they would file under a level of criminality. No, for sure. Um, you know, there's some question about whether the statute of limitations has run in some of these cases. You know, I'm not sure exactly the date of them all, but obviously when you're dealing with allegations that are old, you've got to think about the statute of limitations. Now, some states have more broad statute of limitations than others. That's why Bill Cosby, for example, was tried in Pennsylvania. That's the only state that still um, they could have gone after him for, and they, in fact, you know, they did. Um, you know, you said earlier, it's so, it's so interesting, and you're so right that, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, it seems like you know, we would have been thrilled. I mean, I'm a big Bears fan. I represent the Chicago Bears. Actually, they're a client of mine, great client, big fan, season ticket holder. I would have been thrilled to have Deshaun Watson as our quarterback, right? I mean, it was like it was Watson or Russell as our dream quarterbacks, or Wilson in, uh, as our dream quarterbacks. And now, you know, you wouldn't touch Watson with a 10-foot pole um, for the reasons we're, we're, we're talking about. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Um, I forget your other point. You had one more point, but I forget. You know, let's talk about Andy Dalton. No, yeah. I, mean, I mean, no, it's just um, it, it's interesting how the sports narratives can really change. And as you mentioned, yeah. as Bears fans, we were really kind of willing to do anything. And now, you know, you just kind of have to let the process play out. And, you know, imagine the, the swinging door of the Bears that acquired Deshaun Watson. And then this news came out 
just the ramifications and just the way that everyone would have reacted to that news would have been, I, you know, I think devastating on so yeah. many different levels. And, and a lot of people look up to Deshaun Watson right very, now. And it would have been very embarrassing to pick up a franchise quarterback. And then for this all to drop right after the ink was dry. Right. So that would have been, that would have been a rough look, but something that we're used to in Chicago. But yeah, I, I think it's a good move that it didn't. You asked earlier, the, the one last thing I forgot to mention that you asked about was, you know, the presumption of innocence. And, you know, we see it sort of swing back and forth. I think when the Me Too movement really started a couple of years ago, um, you couldn't ever say the words, well, let's investigate. Let's find out whether it's true. It's hard. And now it's maybe swung a little bit more towards let's at least hear the evidence. Let's at least give the accused their due process. And it's hard, right? I mean, to your earlier point, you want to believe the accusers. You want to give them their voice and you want to understand that it sometimes takes a long time very frequently for victims of these kind of you know crimes to come forward on the other hand you don't just want to rush to judgment we have a constitution that promises that affords us all due process and if you just automatically assume that deshaun watson is guilty because many women are alleging something that's not really you know that's not really um in in line with what we value as a constitutional democracy so there's a tough balancing test. Yeah. And as uh, as someone who does work on the side of the law, you know, what is your what is your opinion? Just, you know, this is kind of off the cuff of just the modern edge of we love to label people now. We are very so quick to put labels on people. And a lot of times let's remove Deshaun Watson from the situation. There are such, there are cases where someone is accused of something. It actually turns out to be not true. But that label sticks with them for a long time. That has to be sort of difficult in terms of how you represent people in, in the United States of America now? Well, it's interesting. And, and you could look no farther than, you know, the trial of the century that we're all watching right now, right? George Floyd. And, and, you know, everyone has seen the video. Most people have made up their mind, but, and I'm not advocating on behalf of the police. I think, you know, I think what we saw there was a travesty and I think there's a crime that was committed there, but, you know, our legal system uh, requires due process. It requires people to look at evidence before you make a judgment. And in the George Floyd case, as hard as it is to accept, you have to, as a juror, listen to the evidence and at least entertain the idea that there might be something that you haven't seen. There might be another side to it. There might be something more to the video. Now, after you've reviewed the video, after you've heard all the evidence, after you've heard all the witnesses, then make up your mind if you feel like there was a crime committed. But I don't like the idea that everyone has made up their mind, but whether Derek Chauvin is guilty or innocent based solely on what they've seen in the media. Again, I'm no apologist for Derek Chauvin. I think what, what we saw there was a crime. It was disgusting. It was one of the most egregious acts I've ever seen. And it probably does rise to the level of second degree murder. But, you know, to your point, I think you have to listen to the evidence before you make a, a, a judgment or a decision about all, all of these issues. Yeah, and I think that's more important than ever. I think you're speaking to the respect of the process that we have in place here in this country to get to the finality of what we make as a decision based on these things that we see and, you know, even see, you know, on social media right now, people are calling it the George Floyd trial, which is a really weird label, right, that, that really yeah. kind of twists it because he's not on trial, you know what I mean? And it kind of goes right. through that whole thing, and that's how it gets kind of spun out. I do want to ask you, though, I want to kind of pivot back over to sports a little bit because you had mentioned at the beginning of the pod, you've gotten really involved in the entertainment industry the last, you know, four or five, well, maybe the last decade or so. 
and our paths somehow crossed in such a wonderful way. I had uh, the director of the 85, the Chicago Bears sports documentary about the greatest team in football history. Uh, he was on there, Scott Preston. We talked for a little while and you had a hand in that. How did you get involved with that? I can imagine the inspiration was easy, but tell us a little bit about that process and that journey. Did you like being did you like being in the chair behind the camera, maybe with the with the mega horn? It <laughs> calling, was, out, uh, calling out lines, calling out the shots. You know, it was uh, it was really a fun journey. Um, I have been a fan of, you know, I, I'm I'm I didn't grow up in Chicago. I grew up in Montreal, but literally, you know, that team in '85 was the mythical team, right? For everyone, even growing up in Canada, Montreal, that was a huge deal for me. I had, a, I literally had a Walter. I had two, po- many posters on my wall, mostly of a Kevin McHale in really tiny shorts, right? Kevin <laughs> McHale was my guy, but I also had two posters. I had, I had the uh, Payton's run, Walter Payton running up that hill, famous poster. Probably you're yes. probably too young to remember it, but it was a great poster of like different uh, defensive players, like in his wake. And, you know, he would famously train on this hill. Might've been in like what Barrington or wherever he lived, but he would run up this hill. Anyway, great poster. And my second poster on my wall, one of my other posters was uh, Chicago's finest. And it was a magazine cover of Peyton Dawson and, and, um, and MJ, Jordan, right? Yeah. It was Jordan, right. In, and they're in, in tuxes tuxedo, and they tuxedo, look, exactly. yeah, yeah. It's... Bad like 80 tuxedos, but Listen, I was like, I love those teams. So fast forward, you know, from 1985 to 30 years later, Scott Preston and I, my director, we went to law school together, friends, you know, since then, he began his career as a director after law school, I went into law and we play basketball every weekend. I run a basketball, pick up basketball league for 20 years. We're playing hoops. And I, I just came to him with the idea as we're, as we're shooting, I'm like, you know, it's shocking with all the 30 for 30s and all the great HBO docs. I, I'm a huge consumer of every sports documentary. Like I know every single one. I say with all, all these docs, how is it possible that no one's done one on the 85 Bears? And like the cliche at the time was, well, 85 Bears, who needs to hear more about them? We've heard every story. They're all over the media. You can't like, you know, turn around in Chicago without seeing Keith Van Horn or, you know, whoever. Right. But actually no one had done a documentary, which was a shock. So I said, Scott, we got to do it, right? Like you're a director. I'm, I haven't done a damn thing. I've never produced anything in my life. Well, let's go do it. So, you know, off we went. And then, you know, about six months in, uh, we had the, you know, interesting news that, oh yeah, are you guys aware that there's another small company, a mom and pop media company called um, ESPN that is doing a documentary about the 85 Bears? And it was like it was like that moment in uh, the forty year old virgin when they realized that there was a Mr. Skin, you know, they, they were working on a Mr. Skin competitor, but they had never heard of Mr. Skin. And they someone told them, Oh yeah, you know, there's this site where you can look up porn, right? And and where actors and actresses have done porn. We kind of felt like like that when we heard about the SPN doc because we had been doing it first and we had the idea originally. And uh, but they're ESP friggin' in. Right. And they have all the resources they had. So anyway, so that was a bit of an obstacle. But we we soldiered on and, you know, we made a great doc. Uh, We got, you know, people like, I don't know, President Barack Obama, the sitting president of the United States in our movie. We had Bill Murray. We had the mayor of Chicago, you know, tons of people. So it was it was a blast. And um, yeah, once we did that successfully, we were like, yeah, we could do this. And, you know, we're hoping to do some other great stuff in the future. Well, that's what I was telling Scott is what's funny is the ESPN documentary. I can tell this to you is like, that's like a pop song. Yours is like a, yours is like a rock song though. You know what I mean? It's made for Chicagoans 
you know, by Chicagoans. You guys get, I think, in my opinion, way more members of the actual 85 team. Some of the dudes aren't necessarily a lot of the big names got a chance to like weigh in and tell their story. And it kind of really walks through it a little bit where ESPN has to like, you know, thread this needle with the through line. And then they have to, you know, they somehow make it, you know, mostly about the Buddy Ryan family. I felt your guys was more of a closer love letter to the Chicago Bears, the 80s, the city of Chicago and what preceded it. Because honestly, the Chicago Bears were not a lot of fun to watch before 85 came around. And that's what I really appreciated about your doc. It just felt like, I don't know, I just I just felt the 773-312 a little bit more deeply than perhaps the, the ESPN big boys. So my question for you is, I know you were probably a busy man at the time. Did you ever like circle any interviews on the calendar of like, hey, I, I got to be here for this one? Were you able to be around for some of that stuff, rub elbows with any of these guys, or just you, you were only able to kind of do so much? Well, Joey, uh, as much as it, as hard as it is to believe, um, we didn't have a large crew. So when you're talking producing a documentary, most, I mean, look at the credits of any 30 for 30, right? You'll see hundreds and hundreds of people. If you look at our credits, you know, it's me and Scott, and then we had, you know, great editor and, and great camera guy, and then that's pretty much it. You know, for the most part, it's three people at every shoot. And that means that I am doing everything from setting up lighting to unloading the truck to getting donuts to literally everything. I mean, like this is my first production. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So to answer your question, um, I did, you know, we would probably have 30 interviews roughly, but half of them are bears and half of them are, <clears throat> you know, super fans, celebrities. And I, I probably did 15 of them, but half of them because Scott was in LA and I was in Chicago. Um, some of them were, we did some of them, we did Marino in Miami. We did Phil Sims in New Jersey. We did Singletary in, in Dallas. So we were, there was a lot of travel. So Scott could have make them all. So I did probably half of the interviews myself. I mean, some of them are in my very office, my law firm. So yeah, it was incredible. And the ones that Scott was the lead on, I was there for all of them. I mean, Jeremy Piven, we did, it was amazing. So yeah, again, out of necessity, I was at literally every interview, um, you know, because someone had to someone had to hold up the boom mic, right? So it was uh, it was amazing. It was really interesting. I'll tell you, I, when I was doing sketch comedy in Chicago, I used to do a show at Shuba's, and they had us in the upstairs area. Yeah. And literally, we'd have to get there an hour early. We bought a stage, and it was in four parts. They let us keep us in the basement, and we had to truck it <laughs> up to the top stairs, and then we had to light everything too as well, and we had to clip everything up and get it all set up. And yeah, hey man, I get it. It's it's a labor of love, right? And then when you see it out there in the final product, it's lit perfectly, and Mongo McMichael's hilarious, and you know it just really kind of sort of pays off. And I feel like that that kind of parlayed a little bit into this Renegade show, which I'm so excited to talk to you about. This is a live Las Vegas show going on right now. And hopefully you can tell us a little bit more about what they're going to, what you guys are going to be doing moving forward. Cause I'm imagining there's going to be an opportunity to do more shows in the future, but Terrell Owens, Jim McMahon, Jose Canseco. I also saw Jimmy King from the fab five, the Wolverines, the fab yeah, five. I love absolutely. that call. They got so close the other night from getting to that final four there with Juwan. Uh, tell us a little bit about that renegade show. Cause it's a fantastic idea and what a cool live experience. If they would have hit that three last night, Joey, Jimmy King would have moved from fourth on the bill right up to number yeah. one. On, <laughs> right up to number one. Yeah, so Renegades is, like you said, it's a show that we came, came up with that is a live show in Las Vegas at uh, Cleopatra's Barge at Caesar's Palace. Legendary room in Vegas. Really cool room. And uh, the idea is, you know, you've heard sort of some uh, peripheral stories of Kent Seiko, right? You've always heard the ball off the head or Madonna or all this stuff. I mean, some of it's 
before your time, but I'm, you know, you're, you're, oh, a no, I, I, no, yeah, I remember he was on the Texas right. Rangers at the time. Exactly. Exactly. Or, or, you know, T.O. the sit-ups in the, in the driveway or the, that's my quarterback or the popcorn. So the idea is, you know, you go to the show and you hear really the behind the scenes story of what, what was really going on with these guys at these different points in their career. And the common theme is they're all bad boys or bad girls of sport. You know, they're all, uh, you know, steroids or cheating, alleged cheating or, you know, something that makes them out of the ordinary, something that makes them rebels, something that makes them renegades. So that's the common thread. We ran for a few months in Vegas. Um, and then we stopped because it was a brand new, you know, I've done some, some other Vegas uh, theater work, but this was literally a brand new product, literally a brand new concept. So we did a test run at Caesar. Caesars loved it. Crowds were great. And then we stopped and then we were going to bring it back literally right before the pandemic. And then that kind of put a monkey wrench into our plan. So now we're looking to bring it back um, in Vegas in 2021, maybe early 2022. And then we might have some other offshoots that deal with, you know, uh, renegades of, of, of rock would be the first offshoot. So yeah, really, really fun, really exciting. And um, again, Scott and I were like looking at each other and said, how the hell do we get from, you know, DeKalb, Illinois to being uh, impresarios in Vegas, but it's been, it's been fun. Yeah. Turning into uh, bad boy wranglers, calling right, all bad exactly. boys. Uh, oh my God. <laughs> you have no idea. Dude. I mean, if I told you some of the story, I mean, we literally, we have a list of, you know, renegades that we've talked to that we would love in the show. You know, everyone you could imagine. You, if you I, name I, I was going to ask like yeah. Ric Flair, Bill Lambeer, Joe Kim. No, I mean, there's a Keep lot going. of different Keep directions going. here for yeah. sure. Keep going, you know, uh, and, and we've talked to a lot of them. I mean, you know, or their, or their, or their representation and, you know, we have a wish list, of course, and the guys we have are amazing. I mean, you couldn't ask for some better guys. I mean, Ken Seiko is just unbelievable. But, um, you know, when you think about how many um, women and men in sports have sort of gone off the, off the, off the rails in some way, it makes for a pretty deep end. So we're hoping to uh, keep rolling here for a while. Yeah, just keep putting the arm up and the bullpen opens up and just someone comes out. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Mitch Williams or it's yeah, uh, Tanya exactly. Harding or, you know, keep going on and on. You know, anytime there's a scandal in sports, I just text, uh, you know, Scott and my other partners are like, renegade. That's it. Like, welcome aboard, you know, <laughs> welcome aboard to Sean Watson. I mean, not to make light of any of you know these allegations. We generally like we would probably stay away from, uh, honestly, people who have committed serious crimes or things involving sexual assault. But, you know, someone asked, would you take OJ? Um, I would Man. have to think long and hard about turning down OJ because it's, it's friggin' OJ, you know, but um, you know, those would be hard. That would be an interesting discussion, but uh, we have approached, we, we have talked to OJ's people. Um, but as you can imagine, it hasn't been the easiest negotiation. Once you put OJ up there, you know, you just don't really know what's going to come out of his mouth at that point. Right. I mean, right. the guy is as is, is loose a cannon as you could well, possibly that's what you want, Actually, But that's that's a cool part of the show. Like the whole vibe of the show is come have some drinks and you don't know what's going to be said. Every show is different. Like you want to hear all this stuff, no matter how raunchy or, or uh, off limits. That's the whole point of the show. Once you lock the door, it's like. You know, here's what you have. You have never the following contains yet. adult content, exactly. <laughs> mature exactly. language, and yeah, perhaps sure. graphic storytelling exactly. uh, with Renegades of Rock. You know, you don't have to spoil it, but there is someone. Is there anyone at the top of your list that just in the back of your mind, personally, dream scenario to get on I mean, stage? So many. We've got we've got some we've got some good plans ahead. I don't want to I don't want to spoil it. We've got it's some okay. great. Uh, yeah, some great artists that we think are going to join up that again. Same thing. It's like. 
you know, you think you've heard all the stories of the various, uh, you know, rebels of rock. You haven't heard them all, right? So until they come out of their mouth and they're, you know, it's a midnight show in Vegas. I mean, you're a comedian. You know what those midnight shows are like, you know, so uh, it'll be it'll be fun. Yeah, no, it's just like uh, it's just like TV. You know what I mean? As the hours pass deeper into the night, the content exactly. changes just a little bit. Exactly. And that's when you're able to kind of try out different areas. And everyone needs to definitely check out RenegadeShow.com. And if you're in Vegas, book your tickets now because that thing just sounds amazing. And it sounds like they have other guests coming up, too, as well. Let's take a quick break and have a brief moment to talk about our new sponsor, eBay. Whether rare, dead stock, or the latest release, find the exact shoe you're looking for at eBay. As the original sneaker marketplace, eBay is the place to cop the best pair you've been eyeing. With eBay's authenticity guarantee, your sneakers are meticulously inspected by independent professional authenticators. A team of experienced sneaker authenticators verify the box, the logo, the stitching, and dozens of other inspection points. Each sneaker also receives an authenticity guarantee tag that includes a digital stamp of, what did I say? Authenticity. And it also protects sellers with a verified return process and for the sneaker sellers out there ebay has eliminated selling fees and sneakers over 100 making it free to sell or flip your collection so go to ebay.com sneakers today ebay the world's best destination for discovering great value and unique selection now back to the pod just got a couple more for you here rich you know uh opening day this week baseball is on the on the tech on the docket now 162 games are you a baseball fan uh are you a north side south side guy and uh, are you looking forward to Because typically this means summer is approacheth in Chicago. So I live, I am a baseball fan. I am a lifelong baseball fan. In fact, one of the other documentaries I was involved with to a smaller degree was, yeah, the story of the 94 Expos. Don't get me started. You'll have to have me back. We'll talk about the Expos. Because what that's a team. My... Real quick. If you just yeah, look at that's... that lineup. Holy shit. Listen, you know, in 1994, they had nine all-stars. They had the starting pitcher of the all-star game. They had the best record in baseball. I mean, they had the team that we, as Expos fans, had been waiting for forever, literally. And the White Sox, coincidentally, on the, on, the, on the AL side, had the best record in the AL. And I was in law school, and I remember thinking, man, I'm gonna, I can't believe I'm going to be in Chicago for a World Series between the White Sox and my Expos. I'm going to be the only guy wearing the tricolored beanie, but I'm going to be there for every game. Because they had the most wins at that particular time when the strike happened, if I remember correct. And that 94 yeah. team was what, like Larry Walker, Marquise Grissom, Moises Alou, Pedro Martinez, on and on and on and on. Keep rolling, man. John Wetland, Mel Rojas. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. uh, just incredible players. Michael Barrett, future Cub. Um, and yeah, they had the best record. And then they canceled the World Series because of the strike. The next year, they fire sailed. I mean, the next year, John Wentland went from the Expos to MVP of the World Series for the Yankees. Um, and 10 years later, they're gone. You know, so our documentary, which is called The Perfect Storm, is a story of how you go from, you know, best record in baseball and a lot of promise and some really devoted fans to literally being gone from an entire organization, from an entire city, you know, leaving people like me in um, – complete despair so it's a great story but yeah so the, anyway i digress i'm a huge baseball fan forever have been and i've adopted the cubs because i live about a mile from wrigley i'm a season ticket holder for the for, for the cubs i am not going tomorrow though shockingly because uh we actually declined the april games i have a uh, catalina club tickets which are unbelievable by the way if you ever when you come i'll take you but um great seats but we declined april because of you know they just announced it and we my partners declined but I might still go tomorrow. I got a, I got a lot of stuff going on, but I've been to probably, I don't know, in the 25 years I've been in Chicago, I've probably been to 20 Cubs openers. So, um, you know, but the Cubs are going to have a rough, rough season. I hate to say, uh, White Sox, on the other hand, even though they lost, uh, 
Eloy, which was tough. Uh, I think they're going to, they're going to do well. Uh, yeah. The White Sox seem like they're going to be okay. It's just funny though. I'm just thinking about this White Sox team too, with all this young talent on it. Imagine White Sox fans, the organization not existing. What? Six years after where we're sitting right now with the Tim Anderson's and the Yo Mancanas yeah. and Jose yeah. Abreu's on there. It's pretty incredible. I, I got to put, put it on you now as a Cubs fan. What are you thinking here? Are, are, are you saying that they're not going to be able to get to 500? Are, are you thinking that we're, we're in a 75 win season here. Where, where are you with the Cubs right now? I think they're going to hover around 500. I mean, they've got, you know, enough pitching to get by, I think. But if you look at the rotation versus what it was the last couple of years, I think it's pretty, it's pretty slim. You know, Hendricks is the ace and he'll get you some wins. But after that, I think it's a little bit bare, you know, when your second, when your second starter, you know, had his best years for the Cubs during the world series run, I think that's a little rough Arietta. So, yeah, I think they're going to hover around 500. I think they're going to get rid of, um, you know, Rizzo. He just announced yesterday that he's done talking. Um, I think you'll see him probably in a Yankees uniform here before the end of the season. Um, Bryant, I think, will be gone. I mean, I think, you know, yeah, I think he'll be gone. I think Havy will be gone. They'll be rebuilding, which is a little bit of a, bu- a bit of a bummer. But, you know, that's the way baseball goes. It's always cyclical. Not a bummer for ownership, though, right? They get their, right. They get their checkbook in line and uh... – when the profit margins uh, stabilized and cooking again, they'll start spending money again, right? Yeah, is this pretty much where right. we're at? I think so. That's right. I mean, we've seen it with everyone. I mean, the White Sox are no different. They, they were that for a while. Uh, you know, great news for them is that a lot of that rebuilding has really paid off, um, and they've got amazing players. And then they signed a bunch of great free agents. So I think it's uh, the White Sox model, I think, is a strong one. Although the one thing is, uh, as a baseball fan that's a puzzler is that Tony La Russa, I just cannot, I cannot get my head around. You know, a young team. Spanish-speaking team for the most part, and they hire, you know, 80-year-old Tony La Russa, whose first impression with the, with the team is a, another DUI, where he flashes <laughs> his credentials, right, with a cough. Like, do you yeah, know who I am? Court of, court of public oh, opinion. On. I mean, this wow. is, it's it's real tough, right? And then you hire, yeah, you basically hire Matlock uh, yeah. to manage your team, right? Exactly. Remember remember 1989, guys? Yeah. Um, the go-go socks. Uh, you know, it, it's just, it's it's shocking that with a team with this much energy and, um, you know, Tim Anderson and the Braille, I mean, you got superstars. So I don't get, I don't get that higher, but who cares? You know, they'll, they'll still do well without them, I think. Well, the irony is you, you, now as a White Sox fan, me personally, I'm rooting for them to win the World Series as fast as possible so the dude can retire, right? Yeah. The quicker they exactly. win the World Series, the quicker he rides off into the sunset on the whatever the the the, the motorized wheelchair or whatever the Vespa the whatever, and you can kind of move. The Rascal three thousand. The Rascal three thousand. And from a Cubs perspective, hey, look, man, we've been Cubs fans for a long time, right? We'll be in the Catalina Club having cocktails, working through a dog shit season, just like we have many, many, many a time in our lives, and it's disappointing, and there's going to be anguish, but it's not like we haven't been there before, correct? Right. For sure. For sure. One last question for you before you get out of here. This is the most important question I could possibly ask you right now. Rich, how do you take your Sylvester Stallone? Do you take it Rocky style? Do you take it 80s Cobra over the top style? Or are you more of a 90s high concept demolition man dangling from a wire cliffhanger running through a tunnel daylight style Stallone? You know, how do you take your Stallone these days? You know, damn well, there's no quick way to answer that. <laughs> I can't believe you dropped that on me at the end. Of, so... So, you know, I, I loved the um, Cobra pod you did, and I was obsessed with <laughs> watching you. it because I was, I was texting. I was texting every little detail about Cobra because, I, you know, I am a Cobra aficionado, right? You know, I, I love the, the, the song at the end, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown uh, band, you know, Voice of America's Son. 
Um, I love every line, you know, call the Cobra, you know, the fact that he wishes he had a more masculine name than, than Marion. <laughs> Which is such um, a Stallone like, joke, right? Like, oh, don't tell, don't talk about his effeminate first name yeah, for God's exactly. sakes. <laughs> but I'll tell you, um, I'm a huge uh, first blood guy. I mean, you know, uh, I saw first blood. First of all, I mean, growing up, like, you know, in the 80s, you cannot not love Stallone if you're if you're a guy like me. So, you know, here I am watching the Rockies. Maybe I'll throw in a victory, maybe a fist every now and again, you know, but then mm -hmm. suddenly we go from Rocky, hero, all-American underdog, to John Rambo, first blood, Vietnam vet, suffering from PTSD. We had no idea what PTSD was. You know, he's just a loner, just trying to, you know, get a meal. Yet here comes Tag. I mean, Taggart is the name in, 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 in the film. Here he comes. And, uh, you know, hassling Rambo for no reason. And then Rambo, Rambo doesn't want to, but he has to unleash hell on the small town. And right? when he, and full hell, not just half hell no, or, or three quarters hell, it's full hell. You don't go half hell if you're, if you're Rambo, John, comma, John Jay. And, uh, you know, it's just an incredible movie for so many reasons. Um, first of all, it's an incredibly economical movie. It's like 90 minutes of like kick ass action. And there's so many great lines, you know, Richard Crenna comes in. Uh, and just like, you know, for about seven minutes, just has, has like a triple double, just comes in and just like fi <laughs> fires up threes, right? <laughs> Everything from the, you know, one of my favorite lines of all time is, um, you know, you bring that many, you, you bring that many of your own guys and don't forget one thing. What's that? A good supply of body bags. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the best lines. And then the other great line is he comes in and he says, uh, you know, Rambo eats things that would make a Billy go puke for, uh, that, that that line resonated with me as like a 12 year old for some reason. I always like picture the worst case scenario is you would make a, you know, you would eat something that makes a Billy goat puke. Like whatever my mom would feed me, I'm like, this is bad, but it's not so bad that it would make a Billy goat puke. So I learned a lot from, uh, from Rambo and like all the sequels are okay, you know, but the original First Blood 1982, this, I remember the tagline on the movie, on the, on the poster was this time he's fighting for his life. Boom, all in. The Push first one, in. yeah, the first one's great. The second one's age, because obviously the body count rises, right? And it almost gets like borderline gratuitous. We we played the game in the Cobra pod, and you sort of seemed like we were kind of figuring out, you know, what action hero do you want to be? And, you know, you could be the action guy with the one-liners. You could be the action guy with the cool bike and maybe the cool leather jacket. And then the other option was the guy who can shoot the machine gun with one arm. That, that's what kind of action hero guy I am. You just kind of sound like a, a one-arm a one arm machine gun kind of guy. Well, it's only good if the one, if you're shooting with one arm to a circle of bad guys who are shooting at you and manage to miss you, right? There could be <laughs> no, like totally. 75 Colombians shooting at you and you're the one guy and they somehow wait for you to make the turn. But I'm really, and by the way, it's, it's Brian Dennehy, of course. I don't know why I would forget. I'm thinking him, but Brian Dennehy um, is the, is the, uh, the cop. But the last thing I'll say is I want to be the action hero, Joey, who, comes out of a fight in a police station where he takes down like 17 cops and then literally pulls a guy off a dirt bike. Like, and, yes. and the, move, the, the move that he makes, is like this little dance. He's like, uh, 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 uh. And he just rips the citizen off his dirt bike in upstate New York. I mean, upstate Washington, I should say. And then just goes up in the hills. That's the move, man. I don't care yeah. about the machine gun. If you can rip, a guy going like 60 on a dirt bike, clean off his bike. I'm in. 
Oh, that's a, that's a great one. I should have thought of that. And then you just say some sort of line like "bill me" or you know what I mean, or like, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, like this is this is this, I, this is being impounded, something like that. Yeah, thanks for the loner. And then you just exactly. kinda, you kind of like speed off there. And then of yeah. course, while they all fire at you, they miss the entire exactly. time. They hit the exactly. one pole behind the behind the screen. Rich Lenkoff, thank you so much for coming on the pod, my friend. Uh, we kind of hit a buffet of topics. Um, I appreciate it. And uh, more Stallone next time, please. More, yeah, more Stallone next time. Uh, you can always check out WGN's legal face off every single week on WGNRadio.com. Rich Lenkoff, thank you so much for joining the pod, man. Yes, please, please come back. Um, and uh, yeah, happy baseball week for you. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. This was Believe in Betting Chicago with Joey Christopoulos. Today's episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Head to the website this weekend for a 50% off welcome bonus. And hey, it's free to sign up. So what do you got to lose? Thank you so much for listening to this pod. Have a great rest of your week, everyone. We're back with more great pods next week. Until then, be well, be safe. Please be good to each other. We will talk soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.